You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. All righty. Hi, everybody. It is time for American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. It is Wednesday, or it is Monday evening. I'm still used to saying Wednesday. Thank God, because this is the last Zoom show. The studio, um, barring some, some particular complication, the studio is opening again on uh, the 29th, and that means I will finally be back in studio next Wednesday, uh, the 1st, and my guests will be calling in, and, and uh, it's going to be great. I'm so looking forward to being back in the studio and not sitting with my phone in a basement. Uh, it will feel so much more real. But uh, my guests tonight, uh, we've been trying to get uh, her on since before 2020 happened. Uh, it's, uh, we, we had a date set in February and then snow canceled that one. And then we, we moved it to April and then by then COVID had happened so that it couldn't happen then. Um, so, but we, we rescheduled at the beginning of the month and I was like, I don't care what happens. Uh, I'm going to be doing this interview. So Kate Schmidt, farmer, Kate, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk to you about, uh, your farming, uh, your farming uh, abilities and doings. Um, you have a lot to talk about, but uh, my first question as usual is uh, going to be, where were you born? Uh, well, I was born in Ypsilanti, St. Joe's. I grew up and still live in the South Lyon, Southeast Michigan area of Michigan. I love it. It's a small Midwestern town. Yeah. I grew up in South Lyon too. Where did you go to school? I was actually homeschooled. So I would have, it's funny. We're like, Whitmore Lake phone, South Lyon address, and we would have been Brighton schools if we had gone to Brighton. So we're like right, um, really close to the border. Uh, so you were home. And so uh, tell me about your childhood then. Like what was, what did you do? Yeah. So I'm one of us. Uh, yeah. So I was one of six kids um, growing up in kind of the rural South Lyon area. Um, <clears throat> when I was, I think, 10. We uh, built our barn. We started getting some animals. It kind of started as a hobby for a while. You know, my parents had said um, I could have as many animals as I could afford to feed. So one of the good things about being homeschooled is I was flexible and able to get a part-time job when I was 12 cleaning stalls. So I was able to buy hay. Um, So I had horses, I had goats and chickens. Um, I did a lot of sports and different hobbies, but it always kind of went back to animals. That's kind of been my so thing no you don't know about you like you've been doing um, this your entire life but there were ten years there the first ten years where you didn't you didn't have any animals huh um yes yeah I guess I should have clarified that so we didn't have animals but we lived by a farm so it's like some of my earliest memories would be like during Christmas time when uh, those neighbors would be on vacation we would go uh, take care of theirs animals so it was fun to like you know give the calves their bottles we were able to ride their horses so I grew up like in the farming community um, but yeah I didn't have like my own farm animals until I was 10. So uh, what was it like being homeschooled then what was your uh, what was your schooling like? Yeah the cool thing I mean everyone's homeschool experience was different being in a large family Um, it was pretty flexible. The nice thing about being homeschooled is it's like immediate reinforcement if you're fast at school. So I was a pretty good student. So as I got older, I was able to, you know, finish my school by noon. So I'd be able to do other things. Um, 
I would do some classes with my older brothers and then some classes with my younger siblings. So it was kind of like a charter school experience in a sense of like, you were just where you were at with each subject. And then you would have like that day, that week's assignment. And when you finished it, you were done, which is nice. Yeah. And why did your parents decide to homeschool you guys? What was their thinking with that? Um, It was just something they wanted to do. You know, it was important for character development. Um, They didn't really want to do the private schools or the um, public school route. So, yeah, it was something they always wanted to do. And what kind of a student were you uh, particularly? You said you usually finished early most days. Yeah. So it was kind of funny. My my mom will say this. I wasn't really interested in school until college. It was just like it kind of. I don't know. I wasn't motivated to do it, but because I'd have to do it before I could do other things, I would just do it really quickly. I wasn't probably my favorite subject was in high school doing psychology. And that kind of like went into the animal training. That's when I became really interested and focused on that. And then um, going into college after that is where I really dove into, I did behavioral psychology and I ended up in sports marketing in my degree, which I really loved. Um, It was just fascinating, like how people, how animals think, how to reinforce those behaviors and just how like we all react to our environment from behavioral uh, perspective. So that tied in a lot to my current job, um, all the animal training and just I think really what what I loved about animals is just like how they think, how they react and a different training like with horses and dogs. I did a lot of that when I was younger, pre-college. I see. And, and so, so I'm trying to decide as to what direction I want to go in here. Cause there's so yeah. much, you mentioned you did sports marketing in, in college, which was a complete, that's, that's quite the left turn there based on your, your, your background, right? You grew up, you were on a farm, uh, since you were 10, you'd always had this right. interest in animals. And then like, first of all, where did you go to college and then why sports marketing? Yeah, so I went to uh, Washtenaw first and then Eastern. You know, being one of six kids, I had to pay uh, for all my own school. So, you know, I worked and commuted back and forth. With the psychology, I knew from the beginning that's what I wanted to do. And I had a really good, kind of a blunt, uh, but good professor advisor in the beginning that said, like, you do not have the right personality to go into, like, the counseling route. You should look more at, like, behavioralism, what kind of things you can do with that. So it was just like a night class. I had taken a business class just because it fit into my communications or it just fit into my schedule that semester. And it was a really, really fabulous professor um, that really sparked my interest in marketing and just how well that tied into psychology. So I jumped into that. Part of what created the sports marketing concentration was it was night classes and it just fit um, into my schedule. It wasn't that I was overly passionate about sports but it was a good route um, to go kind of with my degree. And my thought process was to get a good job so I could still have my animals as a hobby. I never expected that I'd be able to do it as a job because, as you know, not many people can do like a full-time animal career and live. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about that. But so, so how long did you go? Were you like with Washington on Eastern? How long were you in college? And then what happened afterwards to get you to where you were like, oh, this right, isn't going to be my path after all. Yeah. So I graduated high school 2010 um, and I graduated Eastern 2015. So during that time, like I said, I was working like two to three jobs at a time. 
trying to, you know, pay every semester. And then I would go through the summer to kind of help with the course load um, just because I was trying to balance working up to 30 hours a week. Um, it was during my last year of college that I had, I was trying to sell some sheep and I came across um, this farm in Milford. So I said, oh, it's a great petting farm. Like they might buy your sheep. So I had some really friendly sheep. I was trying to retire from our farm, from our farm at that time. And it ended up being a Kensington Farm Center, part of the Metro Park. So I sold some sheep there. I really liked what they were doing. It was an educational farm. So I put my name in and said, you know, when you have an opening, I'd love to um, work here. And it was probably... It was seven or eight months like after that, I got a call. They had an opening and it's, um, if you've never been to Kensington, it's a neat farm. They have a lot of draft horses. They have cows, goats, sheep. And um, I came online as one of their teamsters, one of their horse drivers. I worked there for about a year till I graduated and a full-time position opened up, which rarely happens in the animal world. You know, someone pretty much has to either die or retire for a full-time position to open up. And I was just in the right place, the right time. And I was able to um, get the interpreter animal health specialist position at the farm center. And I've been there ever since. So you let's back up a little bit. Cause I want to go back to <laughs> Sorry, like, that was a lot. <laughs> even before. No, 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 this is great. Uh, I want to go back to, cause now we're going to talk about the actual farming. Um, right. I want to go back to, the origins of this, like you, you mentioned when you guys built that barn at 10, at 10 and you kind of grew up around other farms. So you'd always had this sort of interest in it. So what was it like when you finally started doing it then at age 10 and like, what were the animals that you guys got? And can you just tell us about how, you know, the reality of actually starting it as a kid? Yeah. Yeah. So we started, you know, just as the barn, it was kind of part of the homeschooling curriculum in a sense of like, our parents did it for us, but they made us do it. Like my, even though they were very involved in like a lot of financial backing in our minds, it was like, if we don't take care of our animals, they're going to get rid of them. So we thought like we were paying for everything, but in retrospect, our parents paid for quite a bit um, and helped a lot with it. But we were kind of the driving force of uh, taking care of the animals. So we started out really small, kind of the traditional, we had some rabbits, um, we had some, we got chickens in the mail. I was surprised to learn that usually like when you buy chicks, you mail order them, they come overnight shipping. So we got like a box of cheaping chicks to start. Um, we got some bred goats. So we had two goats and then later that spring, they both kitted or delivered. So we had a total of five goats. Um, we got, uh, what was, <laughs> they said it was a free horse, but we soon learned horses are never free. It ended up having a lot of health problems, but um, we had a horse and it was over the years, we just accumulated like a circus of animals. We did a lot of bartering um, as we got involved with like 4-H, kind of the ag community in our area. We once traded two goats and a honey for a miniature donkey as a guard animal because we have a lot of coyote problems around our house. Um, When I was probably 13, I became really interested in sheep. Um, and their fiber, their wool for spinning, for felting. I was interested in um, knitting and weaving at the time. So I got an alpaca and some sheep and kind of did some um, breeding and training with that. Later on, we, my sister and I got border collies and we did some sheep herding, agility. So we really, over 
the years have had everything but cows. We don't have quite enough acreage or the setup for cows, but um, yeah, kind of the normal, typical farm animals. And uh, what were your typical days like when you were in on, in those years? Like, could you just walk us through a day of taking care of all this plethora of, of animals? Of animals, yeah. <laughs> so probably, I'm trying to think where to start. I guess high school would be. So like my day would usually start between five and six. Um, I would get, you know, depending on the time of year, obviously in the winter, it'd be really dark by then. I'd get some school done first thing in the morning. We'd go out, take care of the animals. It's typically at that point in time is about two hours in the morning worth of work and about an hour at night. If we were just doing like the bare minimum, because we were milking goats and had a lot of different animals and things going on. Um, and yeah, I would usually, you know, go back in, work on school till like noon or two, depending on what, what that day uh, brought. Um, I really loved, I still do and had horses at the time. So I would ride probably every day, either my horses or for some extra money, I would train and ride other people's horses. Um, so yeah, I mean, apart from like going to the store, most of my life, I've always been, well, since I was 10, I should say, I've always been within like a hundred yards of an animal. It's just a really deeply ingrained in who I am and what I do. Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting to me that you didn't think that it was going to be a viable career path because it's not like, you know, music or podcasting where it's like, you know, everybody wants to do it. It's like, this is an actual useful thing that, that society needs. And it's been around. I mean, agriculture was the first like part of civilization we even invented. You know what I mean? It's so right. it's just, especially again, like, because I, I just, so the audience knows I, I met you at Kensington We're I'm a janitor mm -hmm. there right now. And, and you work at the farm center, obviously. And your sister actually was a janitor with me for a, a couple of yep. years a while ago. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you, you know, so I've only known you as a farmer and, uh, and you just, you seem so it's, I, I can't picture you doing anything else. It just seems like you've found <laughs> such a, such an obvious niche for yourself in the world. And you're so, you're, you're so good at it, like effortlessly good at it. At least you, that's the uh, appearance you give off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's really interesting to hear you say, oh, I almost, I almost went into psychology, you know, because <laughs> that, and, and it's, but so let's, let's, let's uh, pick up where uh, you, you'd just gotten the job at Kensington. You'd gone to college. You were actually surprised that you're like, Hey, I, I was, it was a real right place, right time type situation. And now I have this full-time gig. Um, just tell us about those first couple days, first couple months working in Kensington. Was it everything you dreamed? You must have had, they must've been so happy to find somebody with your background, you know, to, well, no, I mean, honestly, there's way more qualified people than there are full-time positions. So like it was, it was just being the right place, the right time. And then working there part-time for a year really was the advantage I had. So I kind of went in, I mean, it, there was a lot of surprises because there's a lot of differences between part-time and full-time. Um, but as far as knowing what I was getting into, I mean, I kind of understood the programming, what we were doing, the animal care regiment, like what that was going to look like um, going into. I mean, there's always like adjustment surprises starting a career um, and then just graduating at that time. So finding that I had a lot more free time than I had ever had up until that point in my life. Um, yeah, it was a good adjustment. It's It's been good. I mean, like any job, 
there's hard days. There's days where like you don't feel like going to work. But for the most part, I I enjoy and look forward to going to work, which is nice. Not many people have that. Yeah. So, but like, when did it kind of hit you? Like, Hey, I don't think I'm going to need this degree after all. Like I can just do this. And then, and then you have, I know we're going to talk about goats afloat and you have your own endeavors that you do on the side. Um, so, uh, but like, when did it hit you that you were like, Hey, I think that this is, I can do this for the rest of my life and never have to worry about, you know, uh, finding a job. Right. Um, let's see. I mean, I honestly, it, at first it was like, well, that was a wasted degree, you know, when I had started, but <laughs> that just makes you a millennial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the more I've gone on, the more I've seen the value in it. I mean, like any communications or psychology degree, it's not a great choice to do that without like a tangible skill set. Mm-hmm. But as like a soft skill, it's very, very valuable. Um, I've been surprised. It's almost like if I could go back in time and talk to my 18 year old self, I probably would have done a similar career or similar degree path. I mean, how much I learned about like developmental psychology, which I use in like our curriculum development with our camps and our tours and just interacting with, we have people from all different stages of life and ages that come to the farm. That's really valuable. Things as simple as um, I worked in the rat lab for a little bit while I was at Eastern So just like the operant conditioning, kind of learning that on a deeper level has been tremendously helpful with horses, with trying to figure out methods for like teaching people new skills um, and just interacting with people. It's been really valuable. The sports marketing part is more like the basic business sense is good. And then uh, when we talk about later, I mean, starting my own business, that's been very helpful. But yeah, I know the psychology degree ended up being perfect for what I'm doing. I had no idea Eastern had a rat lab. I went to Eastern too, and nobody ever told me there was a rat. I wouldn't even, like, I didn't major in anything that would have had to do with the rat lab, but I would have, right. you know, I would have at least wanted to see it or something. What was that like? Um, it's actually on the top floor. So it's like you go, I think the elevator in the, I don't remember if it's not the LA building, the science complex. Jefferson building. Yeah. You go to like the top, what you think is the top floor with like the observatory and like the professors. And then there's like a secret room with an elevator that the professor can get into with a key that takes you up to the lab. Like there, I guess we, a long time ago, Eastern used to um, share this kind of like programming training with U of M when they had uh, research monkeys, like with the psychology department, we used to share a lot with that, but there's a lot of confusion around animal welfare, animal rights. So they've had to keep it a more quiet part of um, their business, of their operation. So it's not, it's kind of hidden. It's not widely publicized that they do that, which stinks because it's a super cool lab. And the rats have like the best life possible, you know, with all the standards um, that labs need. I mean, they live, they live better than pet rats. They have it really good. <laughs> hmm. So, um, so Kensington though, like what, yeah. what sort of, t- could you walk me through a typical day at Kensington now? And, and you, you told me what it was like when you were a kid. Now, what's it like when you're actually doing it for a living? Yeah. So the thing that I love about farming is, I mean, it's predictable every season you're doing the same sort of things, but every day is completely different. So it's cool about Kensington, probably about every two to three months, I'm doing something totally different. 
So like in the January through March timeframe, we're busy doing maple syrup. Uh, I'm doing lambing at that point. So we're having a bunch of lambs and babies being born. Um, <clears throat> we do our ice harvesting programs and just basic like farm maintenance. This time of year, uh, we just finished all of our pumpkin planting and cultivating. So I've been spending a lot of time out in the fields. Um, Pre-corona, we'd be doing a bunch of summer camps and tours right now, but now we just have passive visitation um, at our center. So kind of interacting with the public, doing um, more like the field garden work right now. We have piglets being born in the summer. Um, we'll have a calf born in the fall. So yeah, it's cool. It's every season's different. So a typical day for me right now uh, my day starts probably like 4.35-ish um, because at home we have, what do we have? We have 16 kids, so baby goats born um, and a bunch of milking moms. So I take care of my animals here, get to work. I work typically 8 to 4, so every day is different, whether I'm out in the field, whether I'm talking to public, doing office sort of things. Um, usually come home. It's about an hour or so of evening chores at this point. In the next month or so, when we start selling kids and then milking our doats, because right now our kids, <clears throat> our babies are still nursing off their moms. But once they're weaned off, we start milking twice a day. Then it's about two hours every morning and every night for animal care at home. So what does it, I do want to talk about goats afloat, which is uh, you yeah. make goat soap out of all those those 16 kids and their moms. Uh, yeah. But um, what's... Uh, you said you get up usually around four thirty-five, like, but and then take care of your animals. What does that constitute? Like, what are you doing typically? So, because, um, so I, so I currently live at home because I'm building a house um, in Howell. So, um, we have a bunch of different pastures, but I try to rotate pastures every two to three weeks. So, um, it helps kind of with grass growth, so you're not overgrazing your fields. It helps with parasite management because there's a lot of internal parasites that use goats grazing as part of their life cycle. <clears throat> so in the morning, it'll be getting, because I'd mentioned earlier, we have a huge coyote problem in our area. So at nighttime, all of our goats get um, put in pens in the barn. So in the morning, they get their morning feeding. They have different mixtures for different goats. They get put out to pasture, fresh water, cleaning pens, basically fresh food and water for everyone, cleaning pens is the main regiment right now. Oh, okay. And then I know Kensington varies quite a bit. You said even like by the season. So like, mm -hmm. but like, we'll say today, like what did you do at Kensington today when you worked? Because I, you guys just opened, I think just a week ago, wasn't it? You, Corona had you guys closed until last Monday. I think it was when they opened you, right? Correct. Yeah. Actually today was my weekend. So because we're a seven day a week operation um, between we have three full-time staff and then nine part-time. Um, so I wasn't on today, but yeah, what they would have been doing today, um, we're still cultivating the pumpkin patch. So taking kind of like a rototiller rake machine between the rows of our pumpkins, they're just starting to leaf out. They're just starting to grow to kind of keep weeds under control. Um, a lot of weeding and field work right now. We're doing social distancing in our barn. So we have someone at the um, entrance of our barn kind of helping sanitize, pace people, you know, through going through the building so we're not overcrowded. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we've got a lot of fencing projects that we're going to try to be doing the next month. 
So they may have been doing, or tomorrow we'll be doing more fencing and um, different things like that. So it's not just animals. It's, it's, it's a lot of just, you know, it sounds like just uh, the normal drudgery of just maintaining things. <laughs> You know, like we're going to yeah. go take this, uh, this gardening tool between the pumpkins and uh, I got to put up this fence. You know, I have a, this is probably a stupid question, but I, I do want to ask. No. Uh, as far as Corona, was there any concern with the animals getting sick during all that? And if so, um, how did you deal with it? Yeah. So we were actually close to the, um, public for it. So, I mean, we still sanitized and were careful, but there isn't. According to the research now, there's not a huge risk of um, transfer. That's what I thought. That we know I thought of. I yeah. heard like do- dogs can get it or something. I, some household pet does show that they can get it. might be cats. Cats, might, cats might be able to get COVID. But yeah, uh, but yeah just, just, just curious. And yeah, you guys were closed. You guys were closed, closed longer than any other section of the park. Yeah, um, I think it was like the second week of March because we did like one weekend of maple tours and we were like just starting lambing season um, when we closed to the public. So, yeah, it's been a long time coming. Do you have a particular animal that you enjoy taking care of? And it's probably goats, but I'm going to ask you that anyway. <laughs> it's actually not surprisingly. Uh, Startles people, my most favorite animal on the farm is definitely sheep. Um is funny. I've kind of the Lorax of the sheep because people generally don't like sheep as much, but they're just a fascinating species to me. I mean, we think they're one of the first domesticated animals. They're still kind of instinctual wild in the sense of, you know, there's an old shepherd saying that a sheep is only as smart as its handler. So a lot of things that people hate about sheep, you know, they're frustrated. They say that they're stupid. They say they do stupid things really is just because of bad handling. You know, if you kind of have a calm head, you know what you want your sheep to do, you know how to react as like a predator in the sense of like moving your sheep from pen to pen or how to handle them without scaring them, but making them listen is a fascinating process um, to me. For a while, I did a sheepdog herding, which was just so interesting, just like the flock behavior, the individual sheep behavior, so yeah, sheep are definitely my favorite species. I do love goats though; they're a close second. Yeah, well, tell us about the sheepdog herding uh, phase that you went through. What, what what was that about, and what was that like? Yeah, so it was. I think it was early high school. Um, I got interested in hand spinning and spinning with a spinning wheel. So for a while, like I went to festivals, festivals where you can like actually buy the wool, and I got a spinning wheel. Um, and then I bought some bred sheep thinking that I would get into the fiber sheep breeding business as a side to help pay for school. Um, it ended up being <laughs> that the sheep market is just flooded. I mean, it's, I don't even know what the price of wool is right now, but it's just dirt cheap for wool. There's not a lot of money in it unless you have like a lot of sheep, like 10,000 a lot, which I didn't have. I think the most I ever had was 30 sheep at a time. So I became interested going to all these different festivals, all these different events, seeing the sheepdog herding. If you've ever seen it on kind of like Babe is a good movie for that or uh, online it's really, really incredible. So um, we did some research. We talked to some different people. We ended up going down to Virginia to get a puppy that's lineage was from um, Wales. Surprisingly, Mm. like there are some there are some good lines in the U.S., but. 
for the most part, if you're going to get a well-bred dog, usually Europe is the place to go. Um, because like a lot of, this is kind of a side tangent, but a lot of like police dogs, like uh, German shepherds are actually from European lines just because there's a lot of mess up with the genetics in the U S but that's, huh. yeah, that's a different podcast, but that's kind of cool. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, I did that. I think it was two or three years, which I really, really enjoyed it. Just, um, learning like, cause it's like playing 3d chess in a way because you're like communicating, you're teaching your dog to move the sheep the way you want them moved. So like a border collie's instinct is to control and bring the sheep to you. I mean, that's like their strongest desire is to just like micromanage and control the sheep. So a well-bred dog um, won't go into predator mode of like run at them and bite. They use, it almost looks like a wolf, how just like they stare them down. They do like a crouching run, kind of like a tiger to intimidate the sheep into what they want them to do. Um, so I did that for a while and I really enjoyed it. And really the only reason I got out of it was I was really busy at the time. That was when I transferred to Eastern. So I wasn't able to commit the time to um, work the dog every single day like you needed to. So at the sheep prices for meat were really high at that point. So I sold my flock. Um, I think that paid for a semester of school. That was quite a bit of money. Of course, it's kind of like the stock market. It ended up, the prices went up two years after that. So it's kind of like a hitting my head like, oh, I should have sold later. I could have gotten a yeah. better price. But you could have had two semesters of school yeah. instead of one. <laughs> did you ever do out. it? Uh, did you ever do it competitively? I never got to that point. You know, I was at the point where the my mentor teacher said I could go to a competition, but at that point, working at the farm center, work a lot of weekends. There's a lot of traveling to be able to go um, to the trials, so I never got to that point. Unfortunately, it takes a long time. Mm. Uh, tell us about goats afloat. Yeah, so it was kind of a. I think it was a later college thing. I mean, I had been making goat's milk soap for a while because uh, we were milking our own goats. And it just kind of came to me that it's like, you know, I could make a business out of, you know, selling this. Enough people like it, kind of like how most people start. Um, my brother actually came up with the name Goats Afloat because I was trying to find something that rhymed that was catchy. And when we had Googled it, no one else had like that name. It was like a blank Google search uh, besides like a couple memes, which is crazy. So it kind of went from just being a hobby, test this out, use my degree to, I mean, it's a pretty good side business right now. Obviously with Corona, the sales have been kind of a wild fluctuation of up and down, but on average, I do about a hundred bars a month. So it's been a good kind of side hustle, side business that I enjoy doing. I'm still able to, you know, use the business part of my degree. I really love making the soap. Um, and yeah. It's just kind of a fun thing I do on the side. Yeah. How do you, how do you make goat soap and what, what are the benefits yeah. of like goat's milk soap as, as opposed to like store-bought soap? Oh yeah. It'll change your life. It's good. <laughs> so, um, so once I milk the goats, we strain the milk. I leave it raw. I don't pasteurize it. Um, and then I freeze it for when I'm going to go back and make my soap. So the main components of, um, my soap, what makes it different is I only use five ingredients. So I've got the lye, um, which makes the soap, you know, is the part of the reaction. I've got 
castor oil, olive oil, the goat's milk, and then whatever essential oils um, I'm using. So when you think about it, if you ever look at the ingredients on like Ivy soap or um, any other like bar soap, it's crazy the amount of preservatives. Um, a lot of soaps have like alcohol in them, which dries your skin. It's just, my soap is just kind of going back to the basics of like what a good bar of soap used to be. So it's moisturizing for your skin. Um, it's not overly harsh chemicals. Um, and it's just simple soap. You know, the downside of it, if you, it doesn't float in water like Ivy soap. <laughs> and um, if you don't have it like somewhere to dry, it will get soggy and won't last as long. But if it's in like a well-dried pan or dish after every use, they last like up to six to eight weeks. So it ends up being like a better product in the sense of what you're paying for. It's, um, you know, simple ingredients, wholesome ingredients. It really makes your skin feel good after just a couple uses. But it doesn't float, huh? So the name is just kind of like the goats of float. No, it's yeah. just a yeah. rhyme. <laughs> yeah. See, I didn't even. I wouldn't have guessed that though. So, but um, yeah. So how much? How much does a bar of soap cost? And then where can people go to buy it? Yeah. So right now it's on. It's only on Etsy right now. Uh, goats of float soap. The bars range from three to five dollars a bar, depending on you know what you're looking at. I think right now. I have like 15 varieties on the store. I've had like up to 35. It kind of fluctuates what's available um, for me to get ingredient wise with essential oils. Cause that's kind of, it's an interesting market trying to get a consistent um, vendor to be able to get the oils I need. But yeah, you have go to float at uh, Etsy.com. And what, what like varieties do you have? I saw you have a grapefruit flavored one or uh, flavored might not scented would be the better word. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you, you probably don't want to eat them. Yeah, I've got, yeah. I mean, it's a whole range um, and it changes. I pretty consistently have uh, coffee, so it smells good. It's a really good exfoliating soap. Uh, I've got lavenders, I've got eucalyptus, spearmint, kind of your basic um, essential oils. So like we've got blood orange, we've got the grapefruit. Um, I actually have an unscented soap called essentially naked where it doesn't have any essential oils because some people are sensitive to that so it's like just good solid bar of soap i also recently started selling um honey and beeswax because i i don't know if i mentioned it earlier we also raise bees so i was able to use some of the um, wax and honey from that because i was shocked when i was kind of researching it for a company to be able to say that their product has beeswax in it, like Burt's Bees or something like that. It's only legally required that has at least 5% beeswax. And then you can have like another filler component of it. So it's like most things you buy with beeswax aren't even like true beeswax because it's hard to get it. So that's a really good product too. That's probably my favorite currently. Yeah. Well, I was that that's really interesting that I didn't know you raised bees. No. And actually now I want to talk to you about that because that's a whole like, you know, thing right now. They're saying like the bee population is is in trouble in the U.S. and and uh, and if that hap if if bees go away, it's going to do serious damage to the ecosystem. So, I mean, what do you yeah. think about that? What are your thoughts on that? And how have you been dealing with that as a beekeeper? As a bee, yeah, we've really it's been interesting because we've been doing that probably I think since 2012. We've been doing bees for quite a while. Um, my whole family. My brother really kind of headed that up. Um, and I recently have taken it over. It's been interesting watching over the years as more people are moving in, like within the two mile radius of us, we've had more 
problems with our bees. Um, there's a lot of different theories for colony collapse disorder. No one knows exactly why. I mean, a lot of it could be, you know, lawn sprays, different chemicals um, that people are using. There's a lot of different theories, different things. But yeah, we're in big trouble once we lose our pollinators because they, I want to say it's over 40 or it's 60%. One of the two um, is like all of our crops, our trees. Like there's so many things that are not wind pollinated that are dependent on um, bees or natural pollinators, which we don't have enough habitat um, anymore for a lot of our natural pollinators. So um, we're in trouble. So everyone plant flowers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And South Lion has been just, just. Uh, I mean, like my family, my my parents uh, moved out here in the mid-90s. We were kind of part of that first wave. Yeah. And uh, it was still a small town then. And yeah. uh, now... And now it's just like there's subs on top of subs. It's it's incredible, and it's still two lane roads. So yeah, <laughs> it, it kind of makes me wonder like what they're thinking. That, that this is not some very well thought through. Um, but no. uh, have you noticed uh, in regards to the bees? Have you you've been doing it since 2012? Have you noticed like your your hives behaving differently? You know, in the years since you started doing it, and have you noticed personally some of the effects that they've been talking about? Yeah, the last few years, we've lost our hives almost every year. Um, you know, it's been a challenge of, you know, we had gotten a system down for overwintering them, making sure they had enough, you know, honey to last through the winter. And generally, traditionally, you just, you know, insulate your hive and you're good until spring in the wintertime. But our bees kept dying. We've had them die midsummer, late fall, you know, just they're just gone. So it's been harder to keep our hives alive, keep them strong. Um, yeah. And there's not really a clear cut we reason why and like what you can really do about it besides, I mean, really the recommendation that like Michigan beekeepers are giving now is just have everything your bees need, like as close as possible. So we're careful with mowing to uh, leave our dandelions blooming. So they hopefully will stay more in like our property, our area, and they won't forage as much uh, to lower the risk, you know, of them picking up something they shouldn't. How many hives do you have? Uh, this year we have just two. We've had up to eight in past years, but you know, they uh. keep dying every year. So it kind of becomes an expensive hobby having to rebuy. So when you buy bees, you buy them actually in a box, the two to three pound box. Um, in our case, they were delivered from Georgia. Um, and we get them from a beekeeper in Gahakta. Um, so yeah, it becomes expensive when you have to replace your hives every year, but you know, we yeah, like the honey. Give... Yeah. Go we ahead. like the honey. Yeah. We like the honey because it's actually, if you have like a beekeeper, you have your own honey. That's kind of within like a three mile radius of where you live. It helps a lot with allergies. So we've seen a big difference with that. You know, it makes, past, I think it was last year, we didn't have enough honey to save. Um, and I really have felt like a difference this year with my allergies. I don't traditionally have allergy problems, but um, not having, you know, like honey in my coffee every morning from our beehives has really made a difference. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that this year our bees will at least make it till harvest. So we'll have some honey for next year. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I didn't yeah. know that... Uh that it has to be like natural honey, right? Like you go to the store and buy honey. It's not going to won't have that effect on your allergies. Um, I've, I've heard mixed reviews that it helps, but I mean, it's not obviously like the natural 
pollen from your area. So it's not, it's better than not doing anything, but it's not the best. Oh, okay. Um, Well, the, so, and you also get uh, beeswax for your soap too. So that's another benefit of, uh, so going back to goats afloat though, you you have 16 kids this year. You said, yeah, so we have, yeah, we have, I think 15 goats total right now. We have a couple that are retired. Um, they're just going to live out on the farm. But yeah, we had a really good kid year. We had, I think it was three sets of triplets, um, a lot of twins. It was it was nice this year. You know, it was kind of during quarantine when they were all born late March um, into April. So my sister was home for all of it because she wasn't working. So she was able to be there. Um, I was able to be there for most of the deliveries if I wasn't at work. But yeah, we've got a bunch of kids bouncing, running around our yard, escaping out of every pen. Uh, it's fun for a while, but it gets old after about three months. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, 16 of anything living is going to mean 16 human children would be a handful, right. you know, uh, yeah. what, uh, what, what, what's the plans for those ghosts? And like, cause you're not going to keep every one of them, are you? Or, or are you? No, um, we're not keeping anyone this year. You know, it depends on the year kind of with our flock management. So if we were approaching, a year where we were going to be replacing our buck, our male, we would keep more females to kind of keep the genetics strong. Um, but because we're keeping our male this year, um, <clears throat> we keep them probably of like eight years or so. Um, we are selling all of our goats. Most of our, I think like six or seven of our goats are already spoken for, you know, through Facebook. Um, that's been a really good tool for us to be able to network um, and find homes and sell our goats. So you know, they're approaching, I think our youngest kids now are four to five weeks and we let them go between eight and 12 weeks. So we usually were able to find homes for them all. And people just keep them as pets then, huh? For the most part. Yeah. Most of our customers are people who either want like a companion goat uh, for their horse, or if they have just some pet goats, a lot of people like to go camping and packing with their goats of like a hiking companion. So we've had um, people inquire about that before. We have a lot of people like us when we started, they're just kind of getting into like the homestead hobby farming and just want um, nice goat to be able to eventually milk and do like 4-H with their kids and things like that. So yeah, it's basically small family farms and pets for the most part. And and how many kids do you usually have like on average uh, every year? Uh, it's fluctuated. I think the most we ever had was 20. So like, this has been a pretty big year for us, but sometimes like you don't breed a goat until they're two years old or about 80 pounds. So this year, just kind of where we're at with our herd, I think we had six or seven does deliver. Um, so we generally don't have that many in a year. We'll, f- so it, it fluctuates between like five and 20, <laughs> depending on okay. the year where we're at with our herd management. Well, besides the goats, what other animals do you have right now then at home? Yeah, so right now we don't have a ton. We have um, our goats. We've got a couple. We've got three sheep. Um, we've got rabbits, chickens, ducks. Um, actually, we don't even have a turkey anymore. So, and then dogs, but um, and barn cats. But that's it right now. You know, we're not as varied as we used to be. <laughs> So I think that's hilarious. You're like, yeah, we have this, 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 and this, 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 but that's it. It's not, it's that's not it. much. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, we yeah, literally sure used to be like a circus. You know, we had a miniature donkey, we had an alpaca, we had a lot of interesting animals, but um, yeah, we're pretty normal farm now. <laughs> What's the most exotic animal you've had? Um, probably a guinea hen was probably the, would be classified as like the most exotic. It, we actually got it for tick management. So if you've ever, if you have to Google it, they look really funny. They're like naked. They have like a naked head, like a turkey. And then like kind of a rectangular box that's like a body feathered that's kind of like a white and gray checkerboard. And sometimes they'll have like a feather or two, like a peacock on their head. And they're really good for, um, they eat a bunch of ticks more than chickens. And because we're kind of in like a meadowy, what used to be a hay field area, we have a huge tick problem. So um, we had a guinea hen for a while. And then actually it was like a noticeable decrease and like picking ticks off of our dogs and stuff in the field when we had guinea hens. But you don't have them anymore. Did the tick problem go no. away? Um, no, a fox came and ate the last one. We couldn't, oh. we try to, we try to chase them in every night, but guinea hens like to roost in trees. And that particular night we couldn't get it to come in. And the next morning we found feathers. So. Oh my God. That's like a freaking. that's, that's a storybook right there. Literally the yeah. fox came in and got the hen it's crazy yeah. um so uh, i got a couple of, like quicker qu quicker little questions here um what's something the average person doesn't realize about raising farm animals um let's see that's a good question i guess in a broader sense a lot of people are you know, I mean, no fault of their own. They're just disconnected from animals in general. You know, a lot of time when we have new employees come at the farm center, uh, they're surprised to find that like chickens all have personalities and cows um, that they're not like dogs in a, as a, in a sense, like they're not pets, but they're all, I mean, unique as a mammal. Um, they have interesting personalities, but yeah. So who do, are there any chickens or cows or animals that both either at home or at Kensington that you particularly get along with? And if so, tell us about them. <laughs> um, well, like I said, I'm very partial to sheep. Um, we have a couple sheep at Kensington that have a real sassy, fun personality. Um, you know, it's funny, like a sassy personality is cute in like a chicken or a sheep, but it's not so fun when you have that in a cow <laughs> in the right, past. <laughs> the cow can kill you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So in a cow, I tend to like it if they don't have a whole lot of personality, but um, it can be fun when you've got goats and sheep, you know, that have that are kind of fussy or have a lot of sass. Which uh, which cow had all the sass? Was that shenanigans that, that yes. was the sassy cow or was it Riley? Or <laughs> Yeah. Over the years, we've had a lot of sassy cows. Probably the worst, at least my time at Kensington, has been shenanigans. She was born on April Fool's Day, so we should have known from then that we were going to have problems. <laughs> uh, oh but, man, I never yeah. knew that. And yeah. she was a, uh, I forget what, I think they're called Holstein cows, the black and white cows, right? That's what yeah, she was. We have, she uh, yeah, we have Holsteins that are black and white. We also have Brown Swiss, which is also a dairy breed um, that she was. And do you guys actually milk them and like sell the milk or is that, uh, I feel like I should know that's like work there, but <laughs> No, um, 
I mean, we like after they calf, we have to milk them for a couple of weeks uh, just because of the surplus milk. But to be able to sell milk, there's a lot of laws around, um, you know, being compliant, having a lot of like sanitation set up. So the Kensington Farm Center doesn't do that. But uh, Wolcott Farm Center, they have about 30 dairy cows um, and they're able to do they have a milking parlor and I believe they sell their milk to Kroger. They're part of like a co-op to be able to. do. Oh, that. really? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Kind of cool. I, I was talking about I was talking to a coworker about that recently. You guys can't even sell the maple syrup that you you make, right? No, yeah, we can't do that. Um, there's a lot of which is good. There's a lot of laws around like packaging and sanitation, so you know you can't just get honey. Well, honey is actually in a different under a different law, but yeah, with maple syrup and milk, it gets really dicey. It gets really tricky to sell it. So what most fa- small farms do is they'll go through a co-op. So like they'll get certified, they'll get their barn, their setup clean um, up to the standard. And then they'll sell it in a co-op with other farmers to be able to get a bigger price, a better price. Okay. Uh, How has the industry changed since you've been involved with it? The farming Uh, industry. Yeah, let's see. I mean, obviously I've, only been in it a couple of years. Um, interesting trends that are have started to change and will change are farm sizes. So typically people like to talk about, oh, factory farms or, you know, wanting to buy from small family farms. Truly, they're one and the same. Uh, what people consider a factory farm is the typical story is, you know, a family, they built up the farm. The kids love the farm. They went off to school. They come back. And because they need to create more in the farm to be able to build, to be sustainable for them to work their full time, they'll kind of add on to the farm. So an example, um, I was in Wisconsin, there was a dairy farm. I believe they had, I think it was like 1,200 cows. They had a lot of dairy cows, but it was a family with their three grown children that ran it. And they ran a daycare out of the farm. They, you know, they also had like an ice cream store. They had a cheese operation going. So farms are tending to go right now either bigger like that, you know, expanding so they can sell more and kind of have bigger buyers um, or they're going smaller. Another really cool farm, they're actually in Howell, Renegade Acres. Um, They they just live on seven acres and they do heirloom tomatoes, but they do over, I think it's like 60 different varieties. I mean, they have hundreds and hundreds of different specialty uh, fruits and vegetables that they sell and they sell their seeds. So by having like a really specialized niche, they're able to farm um, full. Well, one of them is able to farm full time. Um, So that's kind of an interesting change that we're seeing in agriculture is you're kind of losing the middle farm. So they're either getting bigger or smaller, which will be kind of interesting to see that evolve. Yeah, that's that. That's the trend with with literally everything in our society that's right true. now. It's like these bigger, bigger corporate versions or smaller indie versions. That's what it that's is. True. It's that with everything, <laughs> music, movies, uh, just any business really. It's 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 like yeah. you got Barnes and Noble or the Dawn Treader in Ann Arbor. Like those, are the, <laughs> you know, those are your choices. Um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, what do you got coming up in the future then? Uh, Kate, like in the next, we'll say the next couple months to a year here, like what's, what's on the agenda for you? Um, let's see. I mean, right now we're kind of in the middle of the growing season. 
So we're really busy at Kensington getting our broom corn, getting our pumpkins kind of established, making sure they're good. Um, as far as like at my farm, I'll be busy milking goats. Um, once we sell our kids, milking them full time, making a lot of soap. Because that's kind of the nice thing about, <clears throat> excuse me, not for myself, not being a vegetable farm um, or something that has like a short shelf life. I'm able to make soap and I can let it sit for a year before it expires. So for me, this time of year, I'm really busy building up my inventory, kind of getting my soap set for the Christmas season, um, kind of building up for that. Yeah, just kind of basic summer stuff this year, kind of like longer projection. Um, I have property out in Howell, so I'm hoping we'll kind of see how the economy is building sometime next year. So kind of like establishing and starting to build a barn is going to be a huge time commitment, kind of the, my next big adventure venture that I'll be doing. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, that's like where you're going to live, right? It's a house yeah. and, a, and a barn. It'll be your own farm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for it. It's been a, it's been a long time coming, but um, yeah, long-term I would love to do like um, herb teas and maybe like some essential oils in addition to like the goat soap and lotions and products with that things with like a longer shelf life. Um, kind of a value-added product to agriculture. So it's kind of long-term, five, ten-year plan. All right. Well, uh, we're uh, we're approaching the top of the hour here. So, uh, we yeah. are we're going to wrap this up here. Um, check out Goats Afloat on Etsy. Goats Afloat yes. Soap. Uh, and Kate, thanks so much for coming on. We finally did it. I'm so glad we finally got you on here. Um, and uh, good luck with everything. I'm really glad that uh, you're you're going to be you know. You're going to have your own, you know, set of acres, uh, you know, in another couple of years, you'll be doing your own thing. This will be your, you know, it'll be all yours and uh, you can yeah. do whatever you want with it from there. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's nice to see some, I say this a lot with people that, uh, that you're, you're a few years younger than me, but um, seeing people that my age or in my generation anyway, that have, have found a career and are excelling at it and seem to really enjoy it is a, is a nice thing to find. <laughs> Uh, because it's not that common. It's, it's, it's yeah. not as, you know, it's not as rare as, uh, you know, the internet makes it out to be. Um, but it's definitely not all that common either. So good for you is, is what well, I'm saying. You. Um, and, uh, and I'll, I'll continue to see you at work. Uh, yeah. and I'll, you know, you'll see me waving from the truck. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, everybody else, like I said, I, uh, am going to be back again, barring any further complications, Studio is supposed to open on the 29th, which I think is Friday. Um, and uh, my first scheduled show back in the studio is uh, next Wednesday. The uh, It's a week from this Wednesday, the 1st. And my guest will be Catherine Vickers, who's an old uh, schoolmate of mine. But she does um, she's part of something called the Cherry Bombs now. She lives out in California. And it's like a showgirl type thing. So she's going to tell us about that and the other kind of stuff she's been working on. Um, so very much looking forward to that. Um, but... Uh, until then, uh, this has been American Winer on podcaststrike.com. Uh, everybody have a great week. <laughs>